And we loaded the ammo, which some of us had never done before. So we thought, wow, this is real. And then we, we drove up to the border. And when the fog burnt off, the Soviet tanks on the other side of the border were aimed at us. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Welcome to episode 41 of Cold War Conversations. Today we talk with Neil Gusman again. He was an M60A1 tank commander in West Germany, tasked with defending the Fulda Gap, which was a key likely Warsaw Pact attack route into the heart of West Germany. We talk about his rushed initial deployment where he faced Warsaw Pact tanks right across the border, details of various exercises he was in and how the US troops interacted with the West German population. Before we start, I'd like to thank our latest supporters, William Wallace, Eric Schultz and James Chilcott, as well as all our other Patreons who are supporting the show and getting exclusive content too. If you'd like to join this exclusive band, just go to coldwarconversations.com and click on the support the podcast option. So without further ado, we welcome again, Neil Gusman. So you arrive in West Germany. Where where are you you based in West Germany? Well, we were uh, we were actually assigned to an air base. Uh, it was an air base that wasn't in use at the time. And it was used uh, during World War II and later and then abandoned for a while. And then, then it became an army base. So we were assigned to uh, Wiesbaden Air Base in West Germany. And our tanks were parked on the concrete runways. So the tanks, it was... We were sent over as Brigade 76. So we went over as a unit, 4,000 of us, in October of 1976. So there were 54 tanks, a tank battalion of about 600 men. Uh, There were two infantry battalions, an artillery battalion, and a support battalion. So 4,000 of us um, sent over to... We were uh, we were there to reinforce the Western Wall because there were some Cold War tensions, and um, we were we were sent over at the end of the Ford administration to show the America's commitment to defending Western Europe. So we landed in Germany, and our tanks were already there, of course, and. But they they uploaded us with 63 rounds of ammunition and sent us straight to the border. So within 48 hours of the transport planes landing, we we had our tanks and, um, well, all the other vehicles of the other units. And we went straight to Fulda and drove along the border. So immediately when we got there, yeah, we were showing that um, America was committed and of course, Fulda was where all the planners thought that World War III would start if World War III was a ground war in Western Europe. Uh, Tom Clancy famously made that into a novel that had all of the all of the things he thought would happen if World War III started. 
Yeah. Red Storm Rising. Red Storm Rising. Yes. Um, yeah. So you, you drove, I mean, I'm, I'm surprised you drove right up to the border. So presumably that sort of uh, brought a lot of uh, photographers out from the other side of the border to see what you were up to. Yeah, uh, we drove, um, at least when I did it, we were, it was, bef- you know, right around dawn on a foggy day in late October. And the thing I remembered most vividly with it is as the, as the fog cleared, we didn't know where we were. I mean, in the typical army fashion, we just got the tanks and we were told to get them ready and, and we loaded the ammo, which we had some of us had never done before, you know, so we thought, wow, this is real. And then we, we drove up to the border and when the fog burnt off, the Soviet tanks on the other side of the border were aimed at us. And I had never, I had never been and my crew had never been, you know, had been in a place we'd never been overseas before a lot of us. And so, uh, so we started our, our, uh, our morning looking at uh, Soviet tank barrels at point blank range because firing solid shot armor piercing a kilometer is point blank. You just point and shoot. So we were looking down those barrels and we weren't allowed to point our guns at them, which, um, (laughs) which was a big point of discussion at all the maintenance halts. But, but I guess they didn't want to exacerbate the, um, the the situation i'm surprised you know i i hadn't imagined that there was that almost toe-to-toe confrontation actually on the board yeah and we at least in my service we never did that again we would go up to the border after that go up near the border um but we never did anything so provocative again but yes first morning that's how um that was my first view of um of the border fence yeah and did you know that was a drill when you were loading up the ammunition or d- because i know you know you hear in the army you don't really get told really what's going on so how much of a briefing did you did you have not much um and you know for us the fact that we were loading live phosphorus rounds so um the basic load for an M60A1, it varies a little, but it's mostly um, mostly APDS, the solid shot Sabo round. So there mm-hmm. were, I think at the time, we loaded 40 Sabo rounds and uh, a dozen heat rounds and then a, maybe a half dozen high explosive rounds. But we also, in the ready rack standing up, we had seven smoke rounds so those um white phosphorus rounds on the turret floor that you know that was the signal to us that this was real you know that we had yeah yeah, so that all the racks were full we had 63 rounds of ammo it was our combat load not just practice rounds right Um, the only thing the, the only step left if we were going to actually go to war so we had the we had the uh cannon ammo because it takes so long to load um if if we actually were going to go to war they would have given us the machine gun ammo and 
We also did not have the firing pin for the main gun. So that was the last thing they issued. I guess that was the last thing they wanted was some accident, accidental <laughs> uh, starting of World War Three on the border. Yes, yeah, and the, the firing pins for all 17 tanks in our, our company were locked up in the arms room. And when we went to the border, the first sergeant and the commander, uh, you know, they had, they had the, uh, the firing pins. So right. they were ready to hand out, um, you know, if something got real. So when, whenever we went on alert, the real question after that was, oh, are we going to get firing pins? And then, of course, as soon as we had a maintenance halt or a, any, anything that had us sitting still for a while, then the whispered rumors would start that, you know, as soon as they told us to move, Top was going to come by and give us the firing pins. <laughs> this is real. Right. So, yeah. So so when you were doing alerts and things like that, did you know that they were drills or were, were you, again, sort of kept in the dark as to what was going on? Well, we... I would say that the the way that rumors work is in lack of information and they just, you know, would say alert and we would go on alert. And so nobody ever told us and we would, we would start reading the armored tea leaves, I guess you would say (laughs) to try to figure out, is this real? Is this real? And one of the other things they did that, um, that kept us in very much doubt was we got back from that parade along the border thing and, and cleaned up the tanks and got ready. And then we had another alert. So they told us we, it was just going to be a three day alert and it turned out to be three weeks. Now, um, various things in my short army career had led me to think if they tell you three days, don't believe them, right? So I came to the motor pool with a duffel bag of extra clothes. Like, you know, why wouldn't I bring extra clothes? If I don't need them, I'll bring them back. Yeah. Yeah. And after the second week, I was the only one who had any clean underwear left (laughs) besides the, the leaders. I mean, the, you know, the senior people, they knew that the three days was going to turn into three weeks, but, uh, but most people were the only way they could change their socks was to either turn them inside out or switch feet. And yeah, cause it was only going to be three days. So yes. And people were selling cigarettes now in Germany during, um, when we were there, we, we didn't make a lot of money and we had ration cards. So you could buy a carton of cigarettes for $2 and eight cents. Okay. So, um, they certainly encourage smoking because how much cheaper could it be than that? Right. Yeah. $2 carton. Well, at the end of that three week exercise, um, I was getting five bucks a piece for my last few cigarettes because (laughs) the people were getting desperate yeah yeah wow because nobody brought extra cigarettes yeah and so when when you when you're deployed to the folder gap are there preset positions that you're deployed to 
that you'd already scoped out or was it sort of i don't know oh in the in the scouts case yes the scouts had areas for us and if we had they changed our mission so you know we did that parade along the border we did that three week alert where we were moving in that area and then things changed we were the scouts would go up and then none of the rest of us so the scouts had all these positions um set up for us that you know if things got worse we were gonna occupy this area but it was just a general setup and we would have had to uh, set up uh, range markers and all kinds of other stuff. But yeah, it was strange that way that we were, we were so much preparing for war in the first couple of months, it seemed to us. And then, and then things got very routine. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, I mean, yeah. I'm surprised that the, the Soviets had brought their tanks right up to the border. Do you think that initial deployment of yours was in a direct response to that sort of provocation? Yeah. And that was my that was my impression. And, you know, there's a friend of mine uh, from. Well, there, our unit has reunions, which I've gone to a couple of times in the last 10 years. Um, but. There's a friend of mine that I still talk to pretty regularly from uh, from Brigade 76, and um, we both got out in 1979, and, you know, we were talking like 10 years later and saying, you know, nobody seems to remember how many Soviet tanks were there, <laughs> that, that our, our memory was, you know, uh, either a division or <laughs> a Soviet tank army, but, you know, maybe it was just a platoon that they had moved up. So, yeah. 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 So I would say in, um, you know, I tried to write about, um, I tried to write about gunnery in 76 and realized how many things 40, more than 40 years ago are pretty foggy. Right. I thought I knew a lot more details than I did. And, and clearly, you know, it could have been, three soviet tanks now in my memory for all i know i mean we all could have been going past the same point and <laughs> saying that that it was you know the 10th guards tank army that was over the border and yeah and so yeah. as far as you know how, how quickly were you expected to be out of the barracks and in you know deployment if if an alert had happened i mean you know i th- i think the the belief was that there would be a period of raised tension before an attack but obviously there was a possibility of the warsaw pact attacking right out of barracks right and we um we had our our uh border assignment presumed that we would get to the border because our normal way of leaving Wiesbaden to go to either the border or the bomb holder or Grafenwehr or other training areas was to drive the tanks to the railhead, load them on flat cars, and take them by rail. But that that three-day alert was movement to alert area. So that's how it turned into three weeks. We went the entire distance from Wiesbaden to Fulda of more than 100 miles on the Autobahn, on roads, and, um, yeah, so it was, we were, 
Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. We were supposed to be there... I guess, within hours if we were on alert. And, um, yeah, but I, I know that when we got our briefing at the border that, you know, we had that very standard briefing where the, the guy who's in charge of the secure, security along the border, a colonel gave us a, gave us a briefing about what our role was and that uh, Brigade 76 was there to be a speed bump to the horde of Soviet um, tanks and infantry and that were coming across the border. Um, you know, there was supposed to be up to a quarter of a million invading soldiers. I mean, your Prague Spring episode said it was, um, you know, that, that Soviet, the Soviets sent 250,000 troops just into Prague. So... Yeah, so we didn't know how many troops were coming over, but our role was to be that speed bump, that when those when they crossed the border, we were supposed to hold them up for 10 minutes, stop the advance so that tactical air could get in the air and start blowing them up from the air. So he explained this, like where we would be, and and then when he took a pause for breath and questions, the one of the young men asked, so after that 10 minutes is over, sir, what do we do next? And, and in this almost movie fashion, this colonel with a southern accent said, nothing, son, you'll be dead. <laughs> and, a, a nice inspiring uh, talk to you then. <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah, but I mean, if it had happened, that's the, that's the reality. Absolutely. Him. And. I mean, were, yeah. were you expected to, you know, was there a kill rate that you were expected to have in those 10 minutes or, or not? You just basically whatever targets you could hit. Whatever targets you could hit, because the environment was going to be, um, well, who knows what, what, whether they would choose, but, um, but in all the confusion and fire and dust and everything else, it was, yeah, we, we spent a lot of time um with flashcards so we could identify the silhouettes of soviet vehicles and other nato vehicles uh speaking of the confusion one of the things that we wanted all the gunners to be sure of looking at the entire world through a gun sight was that they were shooting actually at an enemy vehicle so yeah it was there was something that i listened to um about the cold war and i it it reminded me oh yeah the flashcards 
Yeah, good one. I was yeah. going to say, I mean, did they ever show you any Soviet vehicles that maybe the Israelis had had captured or, or did you only see them at a distance across the uh, border? Well, we only saw them that one time, actually. No, we they were I mean, they, they would show us pictures of them. And there were yeah, there were Soviet captured vehicles that went back to America. They didn't mm. bring them to Germany. But um, yeah, I don't remember where it was, but at one of the training areas, they they had a sixty T sixty two, I think, and a BMP. Yeah, we could, you know, they would show us what they were like, but um, but the seventy three war, um, you know, once we were training to fight these vehicles, I mean, the seventy three war showed so many weaknesses in the Soviet tanks and you know there's of course a live dispute about whether they were the the best of the soviet tanks you know they just gave the arabs the crummy stuff but in any case we very much trained based on what happened in 73 so there was always this discussion uh you know of what the israelis did and uh how we could Look at that. But like, for instance, the tracks on Soviet vehicles. Uh, do you know the difference between live and dead track? Uh, no, I could do with an explanation of that. So uh, live track, like on American, on all American vehicles and on the M60A1, you have it's it's rubber and the track sort of springs as it turns around the sprocket and the road wheels. But the track on on Soviet tanks, at least the T-62 and the 70 in that era, they're dead track, like a bulldozer. There's no rubber in it, and the track kind of drapes over the road wheels. Right. Well, the, what uh, what they found in 67 and 73 is that moving at high speed, sometimes dead track, it's much more prone to break in hard use. And, you know, you don't want to, in a battle, have to get out and fix the track because it's no. it's a lot of work to put a track back together. I mean, I've broken a track and, yeah, you, it's a lot of work to put it back together. And a stationary tank is a dead tank. So these automotive things about how much more reliable our tanks were than the Soviet tanks were very heartening to us. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I can imagine. Did you ever see um, the soviet military liaison while you were in west germany actually yeah the uh in the spring of 77 uh they sent a soviet delegation came and inspected our base so we had uh um yeah i guess there there was some exchange like a, an american delegation went to some soviet base so there was this um in, by 1977 and i guess the you know there was more there was less hostility. So mm -hmm. they, so there were these Soviet generals and, and an entourage that they looked at our tanks, they looked at our everything, right? I mean, everything they were allowed to look at. Yeah. And, and then they had a, a big ceremony at the end, and I'm sure that the, uh, the Soviets were very aware of, of how to make a joke, you know, that they had this joke ready to go. But the, the Soviet general who led the, in, the inspection said that in, uh, in our army, the generals are fat and the sergeants are thin. And in your army, 
the generals are thin and the sergeants are fat. I wonder why that is. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, but, you know, he cracked everybody up. And, yeah. But, but that was, um, but that, yeah, it really was so different between 76 and 77. And then, and then the most tense time in the 70s happened two weeks after I left. And I, I wondered, actually, if I was going to be recalled because December 12th of 79, I, I got out November 21st. Uh, December 12th was when uh, Russia invaded Afghanistan. Yeah. And the rumors, because rumors go so fast, the rumors were that that this was just a feint on the part of the Soviets and they were going to invade Europe, that they weren't really committing that many troops, you know, that it was all fake. And so they, so they had the entire, uh, as far as I could tell from talking to people who were over there, um, they pretty much activated everybody and they were getting the plans ready to get the civilians out. I mean, for a few days, it was really tense over there. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I can imagine. I mean, that that was a a big surprise that move, and you know, it was a bit like something out of a Tom Clancy novel. Yeah, no. And it at that Tom Clancy novel, um, yes, Red Storm Rising. Actually, you know, Red Storm Rising. It's a funny thing that um, I wouldn't read Tom Clancy until this century. I think I read Red Storm Rising in 2003, and I really loved it. But I would not read Tom Clancy because I, I got out, I went to college, I, and I worked through college with blue-collar people. I worked on a loading dock. But then I got my first white-collar job. You know, I got out of the reserves. I grew a beard. I was a civilian. <laughs> but... But everybody, you know, I, I was still a veteran and a Vietnam era veteran. And because I was in the Northeast in, in a professional situation, it turns out almost everybody I worked with had dodged the draft. Now, some of them actively, some of them just, you know, they got, they didn't get called up, but, but I didn't work with anybody who had served in the military. But I did work with some people who, you know, they were, they wanted to give peace a chance during the Vietnam War, but during the Reagan administration, they had become conservatives and they were reading Tom Clancy and had become military fans. And because all the draft dodgers read Tom Clancy, the draft dodgers who became um, who became late life warriors in their minds. Yeah. I just wouldn't read him. Yeah. It was like, yes. So, but then I finally read Red Storm Rising in 2003 and I just loved it. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a number of uh, books out there that sort of describe the Cold War turning hot in Europe. I don't know whether wow. you've read uh, Sir John Hackett's World War, the Third World War. Oh yeah, I did read that, and I think um, shortly after it came out. Yeah, yeah, and there's uh, a trilogy of books by Harvey Black, um, who is a more recent order and author, and he served with British Army intelligence in Berlin during the Cold War. Um, 
if you just look Harvey Black author, you'll you'll probably find them. And that that's a really interesting trilogy there from the British point of view of uh, the Cold War turning hot in Europe. So uh, okay, I'd, yeah, I'd, that, I'd recommend you having a look at that. Yeah, but Clancy was uh, it was such a good story that the way he told World War Three that um, yeah, I I ended up rereading that book. Yeah, I'm surprised um, they'd never made a movie out of that, to be honest. Yeah, you know, t- because of the, particularly because of the, the Iceland part of it, you know, that whole uh, invading on the hoverboats. And yeah, I mean, that, there were a lot of things that would have made, visually would have been, um, yes, they could have turned that very long book into a pretty good two hour movie, I assume. Yeah, with all that CGI they'd need for that now. But it'd be potentially yeah. easier to do now with CGI rather than, uh, you know, do it for real. Yeah. Um, what What was your training in if there'd been a chemical or a, a nuclear attack? Well, actually, that um, for one of my years in um, the 70th Armor, I was the company um, – uh, nuclear biological chemical training sergeant. It was an additional duty. It meant that I would get the the monthly update briefing, and I would have to do a monthly update briefing for our entire company. Right. Which ended up kind of funny because they were telling us how to survive these nuclear, biological, and chemical attacks, and you know, mostly it was. There were things you could do, but mostly it was just kind of crazy. So, uh, so I would do, I would teach whatever they told us about uh, sealing up the tank, or um, or keeping ourselves clean, or how to use mop gear. That mop gear being the the protective suits. Mm-hmm. So we would do demonstrations of how to, uh, you know, we the tankers had a mask that hooked into the ventilation system of the tank. So we would do things like actually use the ventilation system. But no matter what it was, for my 12 months, at the end of my one-hour block of instruction, I would, I would yell in sergeant fashion, on your feet. And then I would say, and if there is an airburst nuclear weapon that blows over your position, what should you do? And the entire company would say in unison, Sergeant Gusman, we should put our heads firmly between our legs and kiss our asses goodbye. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, because it was so dull teaching yeah. that. Yeah. Thing. But so we were prepared for it. And, and we did that two hours every week uh, for the first couple of years. We would mask. Somebody would just ring a bell someday, sometime during the day and, we always had our masks with us in during yeah. you know during maintenance, and then we'd have to keep working yeah. in mask. Yeah. So I'd, I'm not sure whether I asked this question of you earlier, but how how quickly were you supposed to get out of barracks and and into position if if there was alert an alert? Were you supposed to be out in like three hours or or quicker than that? I um. Or is that I one of those know. times I, that you? <laughs> it's just a bit hazy. Most of, you know, most of it was prepped to move. It was the long distance um, moving away to to an engagement. So 
um, yeah, I don't remember it as being, I mean, of course we had to mask in nine seconds if we, if we got hit in place, but so much of what we were supposed to do was, was move more than a hundred miles and get in position. So, right. Yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't like the people who were actually on the border, you know, who might, might have to be ready in an hour. And when I was in Iraq with an aviation unit, the medevac people had a 15 minute standard, like no matter where you were, you had to be airborne on the way to in 15 minutes or less. And they, uh, that particular unit that I was, that was part of our unit, they train, they, they were trying to train it down to eight, right. you know, go from dead rotors to flying away yeah. in eight minutes. Yeah. Well, so, I don't know whether you listened to my, uh, episode on Bricksmiths and the British defense of Berlin, um, with the, no, you might enjoy that, that one. Cause there's a, um, uh, chieftain tank commander who I interview and he tells me that they were supposed to be out of barracks and, in 15 minutes if there was an alert and they regularly practiced this obviously berlin was in a more uh dangerous situation oh, yeah. yeah berlin was uh yeah berlin was like was the best duty or the worst duty you know if if anything really went bad you were completely surrounded so it was um yeah it was a no survivors assignment of yeah. the war. Started. How how did you um, get on with the West German civilians? I mean, if you're trundling around in these large tanks, probably ripping up the tarmac to some degree, um, did were they very friendly, very enthusiastic about what you were doing? You know, they were. Um, they liked us. You could almost, if you had a graph, you could start at the at the border where people really were nice to us. And then as you were more distant from the border or closer to a large city, they liked us less. So when we would trundle through the countryside, as you say, I mean, we would, you know, you've got uh, 54 tanks that the noise and what we do to roads, even when we're not doing anything wrong, um, you know, several of my favorite stories from doing that are, are because because we were tanks, the most destructive thing you can put on a normal road. There was a Jeep that followed behind us with two field grade officers in it, a German and an American, and two men with rifles, uh, you know, ready to fire. And they had 150,000 Deutschmarks with them in the Jeep. And they settled claims on the spot in cash if they could when we did something wrong. And so I'd seen various things go wrong and, you know, they just fix it here. Here's some yeah. money. And because that's what would happen when we would train mostly in the winter. So we would do less damage to crops in the field, but, but still, you know, a tank, um, tanks are really lousy in the snow, which you wouldn't think, but tanks, uh, because they have such low ground pressure relative to a car, for instance, I mean, our ground, the ground pressure of an M60A1 tank, a 54 ton vehicle is only 11 pounds per square inch because it's got so much track surface. Yeah. 
So when, when there's a, when the snow starts to build up and you're skid steering, so you lock, you're locking one track and overdriving the other, um, tanks slide. It's, I mean, we would do donuts with tanks in the motor pool on that concrete surface because you could. Yeah. Yeah. And they have a differential. So just like a car with a a normal differential, if you lock one side, the other side spins. And if one side starts slipping, it'll start spinning. But yeah, so I, I was in a column once that we were supposed to make a right turn in a village and the guy, I don't know, six tanks in front of me missed the turn so he skid steered at the tank slid sideways and he put the rear sprocket into a bar. He hit the corner of a building and just smashed it. Wow. And he kept going. He, you know, and then the commander's screaming and they stopped the column. And I remember uh, a couple of heads looking out of the hole in the side of this local pub. You know, these old German guys just looking yeah. and there's a pile of bricks. And, and of course the, the the money jeep speeds up beside us and starts paying that guy. yeah and says the next rounds on the U.S. Army <laughs> yeah definitely yeah <laughs> yeah but those kind of things would just happen you know once I was put on a they told me I had to occupy what was the front yard of this little farmhouse because it was the highest point on this hill. And it meant there was no way in. I had to run over the white picket fence. And I just thought, oh, my God, I didn't want to do this. But I did. Yeah. You know, I put the tank yeah. where it was supposed to go. And the two kids and the mother and father in their 30s, I guess, they came out. They brought us apple pie. They said, you, you know, we were a couple of few miles from the border. They said in English very well, you know, they you protect us here. Enjoy this, you know, and wow. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, So, so the people near the border were really nice to us, even when we messed up stuff and the kids loved us. I mean, when you parked tanks in the woods, little boys from the village would come up and, um, you know, at first, because we, we had very few people who had experience there some of them were suspicious. Some of the Americans were suspicious. But the first time we did it, we were on a hill above a village, five tanks just parked in the woods. And these little boys came up, and I was trying to imagine myself if a tank had parked in the woods outside my mm. town. Mm. So I was letting them talk to each other on the headsets. And, and the one kid could speak English well enough that he said, if you, you know, if you have some marks, if you give us some money, we'll bring you back some food. So I did, I gave, I had a 10 mark bill and I gave these three little boys on bikes, the 10 marks and somebody from, I think, New York or New Jersey's on the next tank said, Oh, Gusman, you're never going to see your money again. <laughs> and, and in within an hour, those little boys came back with sausage and bread. And I don't remember what else, maybe butter or jelly or something. But anyway, I made a very big show of my crew and I ate, we cooked sausage on the back deck of our tank on our camp stove and let them eat sea rations. (laughs) So 
the next time we had a halt like that and the little boys came up, then there was a competition to, oh, you want to, here, I got some chocolate bars. You want some of these sea ration chocolate bars? You know, you want to talk on my headset? Um, yeah. Yes, who could? Yeah. Yes, who could get the little boys to go to the village for them? Well, no, that's really interesting because it, 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 it's interesting to hear how those interactions worked. Um, so, Neil, is there anything else you think that we should cover that people might not know about? Or um, have we covered enough? I'm, I'm conscious that I've taken over an hour of your time. Um, in the long view, of course, I'm really glad that these are all happy memories of little kids bringing me loaves of bread and, you know, the alerts that, um, that didn't turn into anything because there were so many weapons and so many soldiers. I mean, when, when I lived in Germany, there were a quarter of a million U.S. military personnel and um, nearly a million families and teachers and civilians. I mean, um, yeah, that if that war had started, it would have been just terrible. And thank God for NATO and, and everybody who figured out a way to keep Europe peaceful, despite what happened in the first half of the 20th century that, you know, when I'm on, um, uh, on Facebook, I'm a member of, oh, I bet, a half a dozen Cold War, various Cold War groups and veterans groups. And um, I think that the Cold War groups, um, you know, they, they have a, a happier feel than the other veterans groups that I'm part of. I mean, I'm part of Iraq veterans groups because I was over there. And... <clears throat> You know, having an ambiguous mission is really tough on an army. And while we never had to fight, our mission was clear. We were supposed to stop the Soviet Union from invading West Germany. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, we could say, mission accomplished, unambiguously. You know, that every Cold War soldier in some way had a part in making the cost too high for the Soviets to take a chance on invading. And who knows if they ever would have, but we were there to keep the peace until the Soviet Union finally collapsed. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, immensely grateful that those firing pins were never handed out. Yes, exactly. And they never were in my yeah. experience. Yeah. Really appreciate the information that you've shared with us today. Oh, sure. It was fun. Uh, it was very much fun to talk with you. And, uh, and I like the podcast, and I'm glad I could be a little part of it. Well, that's the end of Neil's story. There's lots of videos of the M60A1 tank Neil used in the show notes at coldwarconversations.com slash the word episode and the number 41. If you can't wait for the next episode, do join our Facebook discussion group where there's loads of Cold War information and further discussions with our listeners and guests. Just search Cold War Conversations in Facebook. We're also on Twitter at Cold War Pod and Instagram too at Cold War Conversations. Lastly, if you like what you're hearing, do leave reviews on iTunes 
or share us via social media. It really helps increase awareness of the podcast and helps us get new guests. Thank you very much for listening and supporting us. It is really appreciated. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.